Um, give me one second. I need to put my phone on an anchor wireless charging pad so that <laughs> uh, so, so that it doesn't turn. <laughs> you know, if Anchor wants to sponsor us, I've used most of your products, so please. What is this FIO? Please give me some background. So I'll put a I'll put a link in the show notes for okay. context. Uh, there was you know I'm sure there's plenty of good videos or links to it and stuff like that. But essentially, what this thing is, it's a just released portable music player in 2020, and it's like their I think it's <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, it's like the company's new flagship device. And so pretty much what it is, it's kind of like a it's kind of like an Android device. But mm-hmm. that it's it's only real purpose for existing is to play music, okay. And so it has it has like a really like a fairly nice um, processor in it, but more mm-hmm. importantly, it has like a crap ton of audio features. So they mm-hmm. say you know they have like the highest quality Bluetooth chip available if you wanted to go it that way, or mm-hmm. uh, they say they have AKM's new flagship DAC. Uh, they have two of them. Two separate DACs. I believe so because of I could be wow. wrong, but but they have like it's a whole bunch of like different kinds of ways. So if you look at I'll send you a picture of it in a moment. But on the top of it, essentially, there are three different inputs. And I figured actually maybe you would be able to tell me more about this because I, I don't know. But three inputs. Yeah, like three different ways to plug in headphones or or to listen oh, to the oh, output. You mean just three outputs. Yes. Okay, yes, sorry. Okay. Three outputs. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I thought maybe you could tell me more about it is because the I think the different kinds of outputs have something to do with the bands that are on the jacks of things, like you know, you know the yeah. rings around things. Yeah, I'm on their website right now, and I'm looking. They have a pair of um, they have a pair of headphones here that have looks like the jack on the headphone is a T R R R S, which <laughs> that means nothing to me. I've never seen before. Well, it's, it's like a, it's like a guitar cable is like a T S tip uh. sleeve. And then, uh, like a stereo quarter inch is a TRS tip ring sleeve. And then, like your iPhone headphones are TRRS tip ring ring sleeve. And so, in the case of a quarter inch or eighth inch jack, the sleeve is always ground. The tip is always the positive signal. And then the the ring is either in this case of stereo, it's like the right channel or the left channel. I forget which one. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of like a mono jack, it's like balanced. So it's like an XLR cable. It's like three different kind of like signals being sent over and then Mm. on your like iphone the third or like the second ring is the microphone signal the other two are the stereo headphones and then the sleeve is the ground i don't know what it is on this one which has three rings something special yeah i hmm. maybe it's balanced both channels are balanced so both channels have a are like it's like it's like two xlrs that's interesting i've never Never seen something like that before. Yep. So I, I just figured you'd appreciate the, the like all the options that they give you with uh, in terms of yeah. outputs there. Yeah. And essentially, this is just like a it's like a thin screen with a DAC attached to the side of a giant battery. Would you buy this? Well, how much? So does it have storage for? Yes. So you store MP3s on it. I mean, I would hope they're not MP3s at that point. Yeah, because I'm looking at their website and it says right here. There's one thing that says. Touchscreen high fidelity MP3. I'm like, okay, well, an MP3 is not high fidelity to begin. I mean, it is, it can be, but it's not like, you know, FLAC or a wave file or something. So I would hope it plays FLAC or wave. Like, while I'm interested in this and I'm like, oh, this sounds cool, like, 
I would love to have an extremely high-quality DAC for listening to music on. But the two things that would prevent me from buying this product is one that I don't have a way to easily obtain high-quality digital files of all my favorite music, like really at all. Like I, I, besides Bandcamp, Bandcamp's really the only one I can think of um, where you can go and like buy a wave file of the song. And then also, like, would I carry around a second thing in my pocket <laughs> in addition to my phone? And I would have to get another set of headphones because my AirPods wouldn't work with it. Or I would bring over-the-ear headphones, which kind of defeats the purpose of having the AirPods in the first place. I don't know. It seems a little like, it seems cool, but it seems like way too much extra for not enough benefit for me personally. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you. I You would need over-ear headphones to really make good use of this. Yeah. I guess maybe if you had like super, super nice in-ear monitors, it would be fine. Yeah. But otherwise... Yeah, and not to mention that if I'm not mistaken, I think it's a four digit price. What? <laughs> oh my god. It's a nice stack, dude. Oh my god. Wait, I gotta see this. Where is it? I don't see it on the website. Maybe for good reason. They don't have the prices. <laughs> I think there's yeah. a small market, but I liked I it kind of makes me happy that it exists. That it's like yeah, okay, me too. we can we can still manage to make these kind of niche products. Yeah, I just thought it was fun. I think that's no, you're right. That's nice. So anyway, well, you know, we'll put a link down uh, in the show notes to where you can purchase this device. Should any listeners be <laughs> mind blown by this? So I think this next topic came up probably because I was reading this book that I've actually been enjoying. It's called The Righteous Mind: Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. I believe it's by mm-hmm. an NYU professor, but it was kind of talking about some things over time. And one of the things he mentioned got me thinking about music over time. And there was an example in the book about how over time in certain genres, the music that, say, white people might like was, in a lot of cases, originally taken from non-white cultures. Oh, yeah. It's like the history of all popular music, basically. Mm-hmm. But as adjacent to that, I was sort of thinking about how Maybe music probably in the last 20 or so years has evolved a little bit, but probably not as much as it did in the 20 years before that. And I wonder if someone way back when hearing, maybe say 30 years ago, hearing some music today, if they would enjoy it or find it really, really strange. Hmm. For example, say you remember the, the scene in Back to the Future 1, the classic scene where Marty McFly goes back in time, he goes to the high school prom or whatever, he ends up playing... Yeah the Johnny B. Good song by Chuck Berry, which is a whole, if you look at it that way, whole totally problematic thing. Dude goes back in yeah. time. Da, da, da. Anyway, yeah. at the end of that, so at, at, you know, because that was a song kind of for the time, the audience was, was totally loving it until the very end where he kind of just starts kicking off a solo and he, yeah. out of nowhere, goes into this like distortion, you know, just flying up and down the guitar and everyone yeah. just kind of starts, stops dancing and starts staring at him and he looks out and he delivers a line like, oh, guess you're not ready for that yet but your kids are gonna love it <laughs> your kids are gonna love it famous oh, line. A good scene yeah and i wonder if there is certain music from the future that people from like the 1950s would actually truly enjoy is there music that could sort mm. of transcend the evolving public taste mm. and so do you think like maybe is there any music from today or something that you could play someone from the 70s or the 50s or even before then that is just so like fun or appreciable or 
easy to move to that you think would have an impact? Mm. The first one, just to go quickly to get this out of my head, like the, the now that you brought it up, the Back to the Future scene, why I think that that, like why they, I mean, obviously, so when he's playing the Chuck Berry song, everyone's dancing and like, because they're like ready for that music because mm-hmm. from their perspective, historically, that's like right around the corner. That's two years out, if anything, at that point, right? I think that's in that same timeline. And I think that when he starts playing the like Eddie Van Halen style solo, the reason I think that that doesn't connect maybe with the 1950s audience is because there's like several other trends that need to happen in between Chuck Berry to get you to Van Halen Mm -hmm. that like makes it make sense. And I think in a lot of ways, the evolution of what's popular, it's dictated by a lot of things, but I think one thing is it's dictated by a response to what's happening before it. So in the case of just use like Chuck Berry and like rock and roll as an example, like that is in contrast to, you know, popular music from the the 1940s and the early 1950s, which is like more closer to like, you know, the American songbook, like show tunes, like rooted in show tunes uh, more than it is rooted in like blues progressions and, uh, or what we would come to know as rock and roll after that. It's so different from what came before it that, that it's like a welcome change, I think. And maybe that's why it was resonating with folks at the time when it came out. And then if you, you know, if you go a little bit farther in time and you get to like punk, punk itself is so impactful. If you look at it compared to what was happening right around that time or right before that in rock and roll or in rock music, which is like, you know, you have prog rock and you have all these flashy, you have bands like Yes and you have bands like, you know, you have this era of the like guitar god and everyone's playing all this crazy music and like punk is like a complete, the complete opposite of that. It's super simple. It's back to basics music. You know, it's only chords. It's like high energy, short songs, no BS, like that attitude is a reaction to what's happening before it. So I think that's why things make, you know, things become popular as as they separate themselves from what's happening at the time and then people jump onto that and you know that's how like popular music kind of moves forward in a way maybe, I think. Um that was a bit of a tangent, but to get to your second point, which is about if you were to play a song from the present to someone in, you know, 1985, if that would make sense to them, or if you were to play a song from the present to someone in, you know, 1975 or 1955, like, would they be able to understand that? I think that question is complicated depending on what you would play for that person. Let's say if, if you were to play someone from 1977, you know, if you were to play them 24 Karat Magic by Bruno Mars, they wouldn't be like, what is that? It would make sense to them. I mean, a lot of the musical, a lot of the instrumental aspects of that song would be super familiar to someone from that time period. The feeling of the song, the like, the groove of the song, like, wouldn't be alien to that person because that song itself is referencing that same time period. And if you think about the tools we use to make music now, after the introduction of synthesizers and digital uh, tools in music production in the like late 1980s, like, really nothing new really has kind of come out since then it's all just variations on those same things you know um so a lot of music today is hearkening back to stuff that was coming out you know 20 30 years ago just being made with slightly improved versions of the same tools so i think depending on what you pick you could play something from today for someone 30 years ago someone 40 years ago and they wouldn't really be blown away they wouldn't be like what is this alien stuff that i'm hearing in the same way that if maybe if you were to play like some like electronic, if you were to play like Aphex Twin for Bach, I'm sure he'd be like, what am I even <laughs> listening to? You know, I'm sure he I'm would, sure he would it. love it. Yeah. 
earlier you you briefly mentioned that you were going to go in the direction of disco. I'm going to do that now because it, this is a great opportunity for me to bring up my classic disco theory. Yeah. So just as a background for that, when disco kind of first came around, things were sort of in the in the height of like sort of the rock and roll slash hard rock ish era. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And disco came in and people were. Uh, kind of really split on it, and there's that whole you know disco sucks movement and all that just sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Then if you look at maybe the past fifteen or so years, I feel like there's still this connotations that disco brings up where people are just almost like hesitant to say that they love it or something like that. Mm. Like it's almost like it's it's tarnished or something in a way, mm. and that sucks because I feel like. I'm no stranger to saying I absolutely love disco and it's one of my absolute favorite kinds of music, of course. Of course. But I think if you ask people, hey, do you love disco? I think most people, not okay, maybe not most people, but I think a lot of people might say no even if they don't know that they do. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that you look at a lot of the top hits of the even the, just the general pop charts, of the last few years, what has stayed on the top charts? Sometimes, a handful of times, those songs are pretty much just disco songs masqueraded as something else, or sometimes not even masqueraded. They're just they're just pure disco songs. Like a, a great example is pretty much anything off of Random Access Memories by Daft Punk, uh, or or yeah. you know Get Lucky off off that record. Well, that that record's supposed to be a it's, callback, absolutely, but. But I think I don't know. Maybe because Daft Punk was the one being like presenting it and da- bringing it, bringing with it all of the reputation that Daft Punk brings and the legacy that Daft Punk has. Yeah, I think maybe people weren't like, "Oh my God, look at this! Look at this like pop record or like disco record that Daft Punk did." It's like, no, it's like this is this is the next Daft Punk record, and it just happens to be super super discoy. And but people people are more like, "Oh, it's it's a Daft Punk record. It's not that it's a disco record, perhaps." Mm. And so that was the. Uh, like you know, that was one of the biggest songs of that year, and stayed on the top for a very, very long time. And that was just pure disco. But I think it was like it was packaged in a way where people could receive it. You brought up Bruno Mars earlier, Twenty Four Karat Magic. I think you look at what was the other huge song that he had um, around that time. Oh, I always forget the name. Um, Uptown Funk. Uptown Funk. Uptown yeah, Funk. which is Mark Ronson. I don't know if that's on that record. Yeah, it's Mark Ronson. Uh, no, that that I think was the previous record from him. Yeah, but. Same thing. No, I think that was a Mark Ronson just, record, just, right? It was a Mark Ronson record. Sorry. Yes, yes. You're yeah. totally right. Yeah. Yes, Mark Ronson featuring Bruno. But that song stayed on the top charts for a very long time as well. Yeah. And I don't I don't remember, like I don't know. I'm I'm actually curious to see what the actual genre that was categorized under if you go to like iTunes or something like that. But that's another song where that song is pure unadulterated disco. There's there's yeah. nothing else there. And so I don't know. I think and similarly, let's say one more example. I don't know about that. I haven't. I, don't, I think he may have a uh, a new record out since I last heard of it. But maybe in like the 2017ish era, the weekend put out a record that well just happened to be the singles happened to be collaborations with Daft Punk. But yeah. those those huge <laughs> hits were quite discoy. Um, so anyway, all, all this to say that has, I think that's funny you bring up the weekend because he has a song that I've been hearing so much on like the radio and at like people playing it at shoots. A lot. I don't know the name of the song because uh, I just don't know the name of the song. But it sounds like it just sounds like like an '80s like pop track. Mm. It's crazy, and I'm like every time I hear it, like the way the snare, like the snare drum is ridiculously gated, gated. Yeah, it's like crazy. 
Um, it's, it's so good. It sounds so good. I'll have to find the song and I'll, uh, I'll put it in the, in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, I mean that too. It's like, you know, it's not disco, but it's a, it's a callback to another era of music. But what that got me thinking a little bit was I, I wonder if, say, even like a younger generation these days listening to something like Get Lucky or Uptown Funk or something like that, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't know the history of disco or anything like that. They just say, they mm. just hear this new tune and they're like, wow, this is, this is cool. I want to move to this. I want to sing this. I want to like, I just be in the song mm. without, without thinking about why. It's just a natural mm. sort of feeling. And maybe that's because they, they grew up with maybe listening to stuff that their parents listened to in some cases. But even if they didn't, I feel like it's so easy to just enjoy and love those songs. And so mm. I wonder if something like that, where it has very catchy, sing-alongable melodies lyrically or whatever, really great grooves rhythm-wise, um, just fun chords and stuff like that. I wonder if that sort of thing is just like a, just something that resonates with humans in the way that we think about and feel music. And so I wonder mm. if you could take something like some of the best disco hits, either way back when or even recently, if you played that to someone in like 1955, I feel like I would bet that they would enjoy it. Yeah, well, like, would they enjoy it or would they react like Marnie McFly playing? Yeah, exactly, eruption? exactly. <laughs> I, my money would be on they would enjoy it. I think if you yeah. had like a big crowd of people and you started playing most chic songs, I think people would super dig it. It's mm. a good question. I think like it's an interesting thought experiment. I'm inclined, like my gut says that I agree with you. I mean, of course, there's obviously there's no way to know. If you were to play something like Chic for someone in 1955 and they were to enjoy it, that would lead me to the question, okay, why? Why is that the case? Like, what is it something inherent about that music in particular outside of all things that makes that music appealing to people in general? Or is it that that particular music is close enough to the music that someone in 1955 would be used to, that mm. they would hear it and not be like, what is that? And they would enjoy it. Which one of those two things is it? I think it's a, maybe a little bit of both. And what, do you, what do you think? I, would, I, I think it's a little bit of both, but I'm leading more towards the first one that you said. Of, mm. There's just inherent qualities in the music. Not necessarily that they're used to that sort of thing. I would, I would even argue, I'm so passionate about this, that I would say this is still the case if you played this to someone in like 1930. Maybe not 1930, it was a bit of a dark time. Okay, say 1925. <laughs> 1925. Yeah. The Roaring Twenties. You pop on some chic. I think, it w- I think it would take a super short period of time for people to be like, oh my God, this is incredible. Yeah. Let's get dancing. Mm. Oh man, now you got me thinking. I don't know. I Like, I feel so... Like, I... In, instinctually agree with you, but I find it so hard to like admit that it's just okay. It's just the music is just that good, or there's some inherent quality in it. Because it's like, I, like I just don't know if that's true. Like I think it is, but I mean the so, fact that there's no one to know makes it even more difficult to kind of to talk about. But you, there are so many factors that like affect the reason why you enjoy something outside of its inherent qualities. Like I wonder, can all of those things be over? come by pure sensory reaction mm. to something you've never heard before. So it sounds to me like we just need a handful of babies 
that we raise to like maybe 10, 11 or something like that, I think is probably good enough. In a vacuum. <laughs> In a vacuum, playing them yeah. only like 1920s music. They don't even have to be in a vacuum, but they just can't hear the radio or something. Like they, yeah. like they exclusively are pumped with like 1920s music, and then at like 11 or 12, we're like, "All right, check this out. Pop on some chic and see the magic happen." <laughs> well, this brings me to a maybe a, a if we zoom in for a second and ask a slightly different question, like mm-hmm. your own personal tastes. Can you point to a reason why you enjoy any particular type of music? Like, is it? Is it because your parents played it a lot for you when you were a kid? Or are you, your brain just tuned in such a way that when you hear certain combinations of frequencies played in a certain way or in a certain order over a certain period of time, it just like clicks with you? My, my guess would be that I think it's a bit of both, but I do think yeah. that there's so much of just like your upbringing, your awareness that goes into it. Absolutely. Because there's, there's that phrase that I've heard several times, I don't know where it comes from, but it's like the music you listen to in high school will always be your favorite music. Some people, some people believe that, you know, hmm. Hmm. interesting. The music I've, that I've I heard that a few times. High school. Ah, I mean, it is very formative. I don't really listen to a lot of that music anymore. Not because it's bad, just because there are new things to listen to. Yeah. You know, I, I had very long phases of listening very, very intensely to the entire discography of bands like, the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or then maybe, I don't know, the Smiths or Hendrix or, or whatever you want to say back then. If you ask me right now, like, do you like any of those bands or music? Of course my answer is yes. But I, I don't think I've listened, I don't think I've sat down and listened to, I don't know, say a Beatles song deliberately in 10 years. Maybe, maybe yeah. a little bit less, but I still love them and I you know remember the whole discography because it was so impactful. But I don't actively go back and listen to that. And that's not to say that I, I won't still love it and that it's not still, quote unquote, one of my favorite bits of music or something like that. Mm. But I think it's like a weird concept of like, that will always be my favorite music mm. because I don't really listen to it anymore. And so I wonder, mm. I wonder what that means. Yeah, I'm, part of me is inclined to like almost disagree with that statement because, it's, I mean, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I remember, I remember thinking very clearly at a certain point in time. I don't know if it was exactly like high school or if it was like middle school or something, but like distinctly, I distinctly remember thinking music with electronic instruments is not real music. Like thinking that being like, yeah, only rock and roll is the real music. Oh, we got a cool guy here. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) But, but like right now I've been really into, uh, Arca just put out a new record. It's called kick eye. And I love that album. I've listened to it. I don't know, it's a, 10 times in the past like few days. Wow. And that record's entirely synthetic. What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I think I, like, I, I also think like your earliest memories of music that you love will, I think, has a longstanding impact on what you like going through your life. And this can be said about movies, about books, too, about any form of like media. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that we are incapable of growing without outside of those 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 boundaries absolutely you know like my favorite music when i was a kid my i love the tarzan soundtrack which is like phil collins shit you know of course i i was no joke about to ask you (laughs) did your parents play you phil collins as a kid they did they played the tarzan soundtrack a lot i loved it and it wasn't like they chose to do that i kept asking for it 
Wow. So and I love that. I mean, I love that Me music too. and I love like that style eighties, you know, Phil Collins is one of my, like, even though I don't listen to him all the time, like I, he's one of my favorite artists just cause Absolutely. it like gives me that feeling. Totally. But that doesn't mean that's the only music I listen to, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I think we have these, these like kernels of, of like sense memory that we always will respond positively to. But I don't think that means we're incapable of moving beyond those things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think if, if I sit down right now and I listen to Susudio by Phil Collins, I'll still be like, what a banger. Absolutely. <laughs> That's not going away. Yeah, no. But that doesn't mean that I can't, you know, you can't listen to that New Yorker record and, and fall in love with it. So yeah. I, I think it's evolving, but I, Oh wow, the Tarzan soundtrack. We'll put that in the show notes. If, if <laughs> I would hope that there are no listeners who have not heard that, because if not, you well, are in for you, quite in, the ride. In fact, I would I would please request that you pause this episode right now. I know I know you're having a great time, but pause it right now. It's more important for your well being and and development to pause. Go listen to the Tarzan. It's in the show notes. We made it easy for you. Then come back. Yeah, <laughs> let's pause there. Welcome back. I know. I, back. I, I know. I know. I know you loved it. I know that your life's better. I know that you're feeling good. So, you know, come hang out. Now's um, the time um, I can tell you that there's a version of Trash in the Can with In Sync and it's acapella and it's awesome. <laughs> if you didn't listen to that while you were listening, you can wait till the end of the episode. But it is cool. Do you want to, by any chance, do you want to talk about paper straws? You know, paper straws, man, I just am so, I have such a conflicting relationship with paper straws. <laughs> okay. I mean, on a purely visceral level, I hate them so much. <laughs> like, <laughs> they suck. <laughs> it's like, it's just the mechanics of it. Just the logistically, there's a point in every drink where the straws, you know, especially if you're drinking out of a plastic cup with the like plastic four pointed star in the middle that the straw has to break through. Mm. Like there just comes to a point in every drink where enough liquid has saturated the straw in the middle point where it bends over around that like star, plastic star. It's a mess. And it just becomes like a mess and it's like weird and it just like feels moist. But like, I understand the sentiment behind plastic straws. And this is the thing that like conflicts me about it. It's like, I understand, I understand the sentiment behind plastic straws where it's like, yes, paper is far is biodegradable, better for the environment than, you know, plastic. But at the same time, I'm like, but majority of environmental, uh, change is not from the things that you or I do. It's from the things that multinational companies do at a scale, almost inconceivable. When you look at like, the amount of carbon that you and I personally are consuming or the amount of waste that we're making is like nothing compared to what larger uh, institutions are kind of creating. And that like, I think the statistic is something like the problem of environmental degradation and environmental pollution is not one that you can simply solve by just having everyone drink out of paper straws. Like there's sure fundamental problems with the way we produce goods as a society on a large scale that needs to change. And like paper straws is like just one small, you know, <laughs> tiny fraction of the real change that needs to happen. So like every time I have a plastic, a paper straw, I'm just like, 
what am I doing? I'm just not in, this is just ruining my drink. Like, do you, do you, are you given these paper straws by the establishment that you got the drink from, or do you bring them yourself in your back pocket? They are always, they're given to me. I, I never, you don't have like a stash of them in your back pocket. You're on the subway, you sit on them. They're a little crinkly by the time you put them in. No, <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I, there's a coffee shop that I really love that's right near our apartment and it's got the best coffee, but they have the worst paper straws and it just like it almost makes me not want to go there sometimes just like thinking about what i'll have to deal with 10 minutes into the drink <laughs> so i just like try to drink it as fast as possible and end up getting you know bellyache because i drank 16 ounces of cold brew in 10 minutes 10 minutes that doesn't sound so bad <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's uh here's my only experience with this i okay as you know i don't drink coffee Yes. And yeah, because that actually brings me to a kind of a question. It's like, where do you ever experience paper straws? If you experience them at all as someone who doesn't really drink coffee yeah, or I mean, ice beverages. I don't really, I guess I don't really drink beverages from straws as a, as a, like I don't really, mm. I don't really go out to coffee shops to begin with if, as, as a thing. If I, yeah. if, if I'm ever eating anything out, it's either one from like a deli or something like that, in which case I'm not going to get a drink. I'm just there for the food or two yeah. at a restaurant. In which case, I'm hopefully also not drinking out of a straw. <laughs> Those are really the two cases. I think I've I've probably only had a paper straw once or twice, and if I even noticed, because it was it's so randomly brief in my life. However, at home in our apartment, my girlfriend actually probably ten months ago or so bought a set of metal straws. Oh, I was going to ask if you've ever tried. I've never tried one of those before. What's your experience? I was extremely skeptical when she bought them. I was like, sure, they're they're reusable and stuff like that. And she she uses them because every day she makes iced coffee for herself, and it's like a really it's like a nice thing for her to be able to do that instead of having to sip it. And she is in love with them. She uses like mm. at least one a day, and then it's great. We wash them, we use them. It's fantastic for that purpose. It's great mm. for the for the few times that I use anything with a straw. It's really only if I maybe have like a a juice or something in the blender and there's like a lot of vegetable foam or whatever you want to call it. That the juicer puts up and it's just hard to eat and it's getting in my face and it's just kind of, Oh my God, it's everywhere. When you need to get into the real liquid. Exactly. Then yeah. maybe for the start of it, I'll pop a straw in there. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I was extremely skeptical when, when she first got them, I thought they were going to be clanking around your mouth and everything. And it's just going to be like a, a, a weird feeling. I thought it would be f- maybe feeling like unclean or something like, I don't want to be sipping metal. But but I will say, I was wrong. They are great. I I think you get very quickly used to using them. So any clanking that would happen, non-issue. Yeah, I would say that they are super easy to clean. They're really nice. They're very like tall. They're sturdy. They're strong. So they're not bending around everywhere. They you like they always 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 perform the same way. Like there's no variability, which is super nice. Mm. So uh, I I would I would recommend chew them to oblivion. No, you either. can't. You can't. You can try. Which is the problem with all straws? That's not just paper straws. Yep, plastic yep. straws are like I destroy plastic straws mm-hmm. if I have the cup for too long. I mean, I'm not really a straw user slash connoisseur, but <laughs> <laughs> but if I had to pick straws, I think I would go with metal straws. They're they're great. They're reusable. The only the only question that I have with them is if you, for example, you in your life, if you bought a set of um, metal straws, would you? carry them around to like a coffee shop would you bring your straw 
And would you have like a little straw pouch or straw sleeve that you bring with you? How do you clean it when you put it back in? Like, do you need to be near a sink when you're done with your coffee from the coffee shop in order to rinse out your straw before putting it back in its pouch? Do you just pop it in as in a dirty pouch and then wash the straw and the pouch when you get home? It's a lot of logistics involved. You're just, just, (laughs) that just stresses me out. You just saying that, like, like going down that list, I just like spiraled into just like stress hole. Like for that purpose alone, no way I would do that. Oh, no, I, I I don't think I could manage the like remembering to clean it and then like n- forgetting to clean it one day and then going to use it the next day and realizing it's dirty and then not using it and then using it. It's just it's just a bad cycle, I think. <laughs> but it does bring up: Do we even need straws at all? I mean, you had mentioned the pleasure of drinking through the you know this metal straw you have. Like it's a great experience, and you use it to like get to the bottom of your fancy juice or whatever. But I mean, we don't really need straws. I mean, they're convenient and they're nice, but we don't really need them. I mean, I've seen, I don't know if you've seen these, but there are these, some places now that they have these, like, they're like a plastic version of what you normally get on like a hot coffee cup. Um, So it's like you get an iced coffee and it's like a little, like, it looks like a sippy cup uh, lid Mm. um, that you put on like an iced drink. You're speaking about the lids that have the opening near an edge, not in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that you can drink, so you can drink an iced beverage like you would a hot beverage. And like, I mm-hmm. so prefer that. I would bring those lids with me before I would bring a metal straw with me. Interesting. To an establishment. To me, that's like the best way, the best way of doing it. Or it's my preferred way of enjoying a beverage. You know, I can't really relate since <laughs> that's weird to me. I don't yeah. even, the thing is, I, I don't even drink tea anymore either because I can't. Yeah, it makes me sick. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You're one of the few people I know that, that doesn't drink tea. Yeah, you should clarify. Yeah, just for the listener, so you don't think I have like some disease or something. Um, <laughs> no, I think it was probably I don't know, twelve years ago at this point. I was a tea fanatic at the time. I would drink tea all the time, and I just happened not from tea, but from something I was having with tea. I think happened to get some super duper bad food poisoning, like terrible. Couldn't really get out of bed for like a week, except to go to the bathroom. Not from the tea. Wow, not a from week. The tea. Holy, uh, crap. I think five days. It was like yeah, like Monday to Friday. It wasn't until that weekend that I could even like go hang out with people or something. Oh my gosh, yeah, it was not a good time. And my brain just associated that sort of sick feeling with anything that I had in that meal, which were two things that I remember: one, tea, and two, <laughs> any sort of crunchy tempura style sushi. Mm. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. It's really too bad because those that's are both stuff, delicious dude. things. I, 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 up until then, I thoroughly enjoyed both. I, I've gotten a little bit better about tea over the years. I, previously, even like smelling tea in the vicinity would kind of give me a bit of a headache or a stomach ache. Wow, or make me feel a little sick. Trying tea for the longest time would would definitely kind of give me a bit of an upset stomach. I think now, in the past maybe two three years, smelling tea is mostly fine. Most flavors. And sometimes iced tea is okay for me to drink, but otherwise, yeah, I was going to say I was just about to ask about iced tea. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I would really, really love. I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's probably a way that I can just aggressively get over it or something like that if I really put my mind to it. <laughs> Exposure therapy. Yeah. So it's a damn shame. Yeah, I think the lesson here is we need to progress beyond the need for straws in our society. Mm. We just don't need them anymore, or we should well, maybe you know I don't know. I can hmm. see the, I mean, there's use for them. I mean, okay, I don't want to so get. As neither a user of straws or the sippy cup lid things or whatever you call them, <laughs> my, my guess would be that if you're 
maybe picking up a, a coffee on the way to work or something like that. And maybe you are on the subway or in a car or something and it goes over a bump and it just jumps up and you spill it all over yourself. That's a mess. Yeah. But I feel yeah. like I feel like the the lid sippy cup thing, unless it has one of those little flaps that you can use to cover it, wouldn't really save you. No, it wouldn't. And a straw might. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. This the mm, that's a good point. There is a safety function there. That the like <laughs> sippy cup lid doesn't doesn't protect you at all. In the same way that like a regular coffee cup right. will spill on you. Yeah, yeah. No matter what. I mean I've I've um, seen the little sippy cup things with the little flap that you can just tuck into the opening. Yeah. The flap is super nice. Um I don't know if I've ever had a plastic one on an ice beverage with the flap. I might have, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to do some research on that to see if they exist. But if they do exist, I think that would be the like that would be my like go to. Your ideal. Yeah, my ideal. I'll see if I can for the next one. I'll see if I can like find one for you. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate that. I think you know what you know, honestly what the the real if we want to talk about like a Star Trek level society, everyone brings their own container to the coffee shop. Like that's the oh yeah yeah you bring your you know, own, that's how we achieve the, that's how we achieve a Star Trek utopia is we eliminate the need for disposable cups entirely. I mean that sounds good to me. I, I think it's better. I mean, like your thermos is going to keep your thing cooler better than any cup you get at the uh you know at the coffee shop. So there is a benefit there. I think there you go done deal. So I've recently found myself with a little bit more time on my hands than than usual, um, just because of the way work worked out and things like that. So I found myself with a good amount more time during the day, like in the like late afternoon, like sort of after, you know, I'm thinking around like four o'clock, five o'clock, when you like don't want to start a new project necessarily, but you're not ready to kind of to sit down, have dinner or something. I was like, I need something to do during these time periods. So what do I do? Is I turn to something that I haven't turned to in quite a long time. And when I say a long time, I mean like years. And that's playing video games. So anyone who knows me knows that I really don't play video games and I like don't own really any gaming systems. But I just returned within the past month or two, returned to playing video games. And out of uh, nostalgia slash comfort, I started playing Pokemon games again. Just because, I mean, when I was a kid, those were my absolute favorite video games. I played them for a few hours every weekend for seven years at least. I started playing these games again and as an adult going back to these games, I was of course seeing uh, aspects of the game that when I was a kid like I just didn't understand like certain elements of the mechanics of the game and the amount to which random number generation factors into the gameplay, the the so-called quote metagame, uh, the competitive aspects of the game and in doing those things I sort of of course now that we, you know, because of we live in 2020, there is a gajillion YouTube videos that you can watch of people talking about competitive Pokemon playing or talking about, uh, you know, analyzing the the game from a competitive perspective. And in doing, you know, kind of consuming some of this uh, this content, I sort of I stumbled upon this one video, which I'll see if I can find it again and link it. The guy in the video was talking about how competitive Pokemon is basically, if you boil it down, chess and poker put together. And what he means by that is it's a strategic game in that you are playing against an opponent where there are fixed rules in terms of what you can and what you can't do. And from that rule set, a number of different strategies sort of blossom out of that. 
And so you're playing this like, in the same way that chess is pattern based and that in certain, you know, at a certain level of chess playing, people start just memorizing certain patterns of pieces on the board um, that Pokemon kind of works the same way that it sort of, sort of becomes about pattern recognition. And like, if I do this and then that means they can do a, B and C and you know, you start to, you know, think three, four moves ahead and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it has that element to it, but it also has, which chess doesn't really have is it has a random or a probability aspect to it in the same way that poker does, where you don't know what the next card is going to be that you're going to get dealt. I'm to be honest, I don't, I don't think I've ever played poker, so I can't like <laughs> really speak too much on this, but there is a random element in poker. And so, you know, for example, in the case of Pokemon, like there are certain moves that have, you know, 95% accuracy, or there are certain status conditions. Like let's say your character is asleep. There is a one in three chance that they're going to wake up for the next three turns. So you're thinking about that and that's playing into your strategy. So while the, at the same time you're managing your opponent's uh, moves and the long-term game associated with what your opponent seems to be doing, you're also managing the probability that certain events will happen at certain points in your strategy. And as those things start to change, you have to kind of manage your strategy and adapt your strategy according to these various probabilities. So you're both playing against an opponent, but you're also playing against probabilities. Yeah. So that's kind of the two factors of the game. Probability management and then like opponent management or strategy something like that out of curiosity did you go back and play the original pokemon games that you played when you were younger or did you play sort of like the latest and greatest i played a little bit of both i started playing i first i played sapphire version just like for a little bit but then i quickly kind of discovered that there were some newer ones that had come out um that were like sort of like fan-made games where they like took aspects of all the the like the newer games and incorporated them into a gameplay style similar to you know gen 3 which is like the one i grew up playing so it was like all the good stuff from like the newer games so like the newer mechanics moves and typesets and all these things but bringing that into a gameplay style more akin to like the game boy era which is what i'm like really comfortable playing so there was the like nostalgia factor from that um which i was really enjoying so i kind of really got into playing these like fan-made hybrid games um just because it just kind of ticked all the right boxes for me so what this long-winded introduction leads me to is it got me thinking about okay well what are what are if if you can boil down pokemon to probability management and strategy or uh, long-term strategy can other games be similarly kind of boiled down to combinations of two or three different super games if that makes sense like you're really playing two games or you're playing one game like when you're playing as an example like like the most basic game. Like if you're playing tic-tac-toe, what you're really doing is you're playing a long-term strategy game, long-term, long-term. In the sense, <laughs> against your opponent, and you're playing pattern recognition. So there are only, I don't know what the math is, but there are only a certain number of ways that you can end tic-tac-toe. And you're aware of that while you're playing the game. So you're thinking about those patterns, and you're thinking about what move is my opponent going to make next based on the move I'm making right now. So there's like... Those are the two aspects of tic-tac-toe. To a slightly more, take it in a completely different direction, if you want to talk about like golf as something, the complete opposite of that, there's the physical skill involved, the motor skills involved with playing golf, and then there's sort of this like probability management of the weather and like the wind. And you're sort of dealing with these factors that can kind of do, that are out of your control, basically. So you're playing like, that. that's sort of the 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 two facets of golf that you're managing while you're playing golf. 
or if you're playing to go on something that's you know more in your uh, alley is uh, Super Smash Brothers, right? Like that's a game that involves physical skill, motor skills, fine motor skills, and sort of reading your opponent and playing against your opponent's choices and kind of predicting what your opponent's going to do in this kind of strategy game. So I was just, I don't know, I just got me thinking like, is it too reductionist to kind of think, oh, maybe all games are just like combinations of more simple mechanisms or is every game kind of slightly different? Oof. So I think there's a lot to unpack here. I love the whole topic of this question. It's super fun, super up my alley. I think um, maybe to to further just add a tiny bit of color to the Super Smash Brothers one. I'm I'm also not a video game person. Mm-hmm. I would say I'm interested in like the art slash maybe technical like development and coding part of video games a little bit. Um, not that I know any of it, but it's just interesting. I would say Super Smash Brothers. Melee for the Nintendo GameCube, the second one, really stands stands aside. And I think one thing that that I would add to your description of it is that yes, there's a, there's motor skills and physical skill and reading the opponent and all that aspect of it. I think another point there that is that is interesting. That's probably the case with a lot of fighting games. Actually, I just don't really know the the intricacies of many other ones. Is that you can know about techniques or strategies that would be incredibly useful versus a certain kind of opponent. Like if a certain kind of opponent enjoys doing a, a certain habit with their character and you know, mm. okay, I know that this one, maybe, I don't know, defense attack exists that I could do with my character that would pretty much invalidate their, their game plan, but I am not skilled enough to do it. That's a that's a really annoying barrier to be in where I, mm. I know enough about the game to know that this is what I have to do to beat this, but I don't have the physical skill or motor skills to execute that strategy. But mm. so I have to think, okay, this is what would beat it. Is there any way that I can adapt my current level of skill to what would what the effect of that higher level skill would be? And can I can, and can and can I adapt that quickly in the span of three minutes? That's interesting because I think that points to something I think you could say about maybe most games is that you know at a certain level of your once you become super comfortable with playing the game you sort of understand that based on certain situations that you're in there are certain ways like certain win conditions that you can achieve based on that situation but there's also this element of it where once you become experienced enough you recognize when that win condition is impossible for you to achieve yes and you kind of get that's like that's this kind of like I think that's a level of mastery that for any particular game, I think is like, at least for me personally, what I would hope to achieve in my involvement with any game is understanding when you can't win or when winning is impossible, but also knowing how you can win and why your current situation makes that win impossible. Yep. Yep. And I want to, so there are, there are two really main things that come to mind here that I want to, that I want to touch upon. One is first, I just want to, I want to make, that fun connection. So you originally mentioned chess as one of the things that you brought up. So it's like long-term yeah. strategic planning, memorizing patterns, um, but also like a lot of experience is is necessary to to have a level of mastery in that game where you feel yeah. sort of truly comfortable with it. I think there's a there's a nice connection to be made between that and certain video games, like for example Super Smash Brothers Melee for the Nintendo GameCube, <laughs> and um, and maybe not Pokemon in the way that. Chess is a game where both players have 100% information. 
There is there are no mm. there are no surprises. It's not like you have a hidden piece somewhere. Uh, they 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 can't do a move that you didn't know was legal or something like that. They can't yeah. they can't do anything. Like you know all the possible things that they are allowed to do. They can just surprise you with the the actions that they actually take within that move set. There's no probability of any kind whatsoever. Yeah. I guess you could say that's also kind of like sports, like um, physical sports, where especially at the at the professional level, where you can you the you know the coaches or whomever is strategizing makes decisions based off of the particular players on other teams and their strengths and weaknesses. It's kind of a similar thing. It's like there's no surprises. Yes. There is like the you know it's like this goalie may not be in right now, but that goalie could be in, and you need to prepare for you know who's going to be on the field at any particular time, whether you're playing hockey or soccer or whatever. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And I think you could relate that both to chess and Super Smash Brothers Melee. Because say in in Melee, you have scenarios where you're going up against a certain player that you know has a certain playstyle or uses a certain character, mm, and you know that your yeah. default playstyle or character might not work well against that. You either yeah. might have to change your playstyle a little bit, be maybe more patient or more aggressive, or switch a character entirely and, and try something different because you have that information coming into it. And chess, actually, I I used to, I don't know if you knew this about me, actually, but um, I was, I think I was in the chess club in elementary school at my school. That doesn't surprise me. Really? Why not? <laughs> no. I'm, it's just because of who you are and like what the things you enjoy as the adult that I know you as like doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't remember very much about it. I remember going to a few tournaments. I remember have a, I have a trophy. I had a trophy for a while. <laughs> really? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> That's know. cool. Yeah, it was, I won it at some tournament. It was it was fun. But uh, I recently actually, I think maybe like a week or two ago, I finished reading a book called Deep Thinking by Gary Kasparov. Have you heard of him? No. Gary Kasparov, I think, is probably considered one of, if not the greatest chess player of all time. Mm. And so he's he's written a few books, but this is sort of the first book where he goes really, really deep into his experience as the world's best chess player, at least at the time, ranked, playing against a machine. Ah, uh, yes. This was the dude that was Kasparov versus IBM Deep Blue. And he he won, correct? He won the first time. And then he lost in the rematch. Interesting. The book itself, I think, was was excellent. And I I really, really liked it. He talks a lot about chess, but then it also extrapolates a lot of those ideas from chess into, I guess, like ideas and conversations about consciousness and humans versus AI and machines and what the what the roles of each are. Uh, I I found him to be a, a really, really good thinker on those kinds of subjects, actually. I really enjoyed it. And he had so many comments and so many insights about his experiences uh, in the chess world versus something like machines that were, that were really, really fascinating that I, I think might relate to this. So for example, one of them would be the, the way that chess algorithms were sort of being developed for a while were maybe inefficient or, or people thought that you could never actually have a chess algorithm that worked well enough in the original methods, which were maybe trying to like, go through um, you know, a certain number of permutations brute forcing them. But the thing was that very, very quickly became impossible because there are, you know, however many close to infinite possibilities in chess, even just in the first few opening moves. So very quickly that, that didn't work out and they needed a, a different strategy. And so it ended up being the way that the way that IBM was able to beat Gary Kasparov in 
in the rematch is through a bunch of reasons, but one of which was like they had to calibrate the machine to have like a certain what they call opening book, which is the the way that it reacts to certain opening moves or the way that it, that it decides to play opening moves. Mm-hmm. It, it was a they had a few other so, like world's best kind of level chess players come in and actually work with them to calibrate the book. And in this case, actually, they calibrated it to specifically try to counter Gary Kasparov's actual play style, mm-hmm. not just as a general thing. And what ended up happening, he he spoke about this, is that there were one or two games where there were certain pivotal moves that the machine did that were very unexpected, that he didn't see coming, because in his opinion, they weren't the optimal move. And in fact, it probably put him in a worse position. And he said that... Put the, the, put the IBM, the yes. deep blue in a worse position. Okay. Uh-huh. And what was fascinating was that he said that it, it was this really strange feeling where he almost started doubting himself, him being the undisputed best chess player in the world, saying, huh, huh. is there something I'm not seeing here? Is that a better... Like, Am I giving it... He started essentially giving it more credit than it really deserved because he he was like this thing doesn't think like a human. It's not making these calculations in the same way that a human would. So what is it calculating here? Is it calculating for a, a, a different end game down the line? And is it just like an absolutely genius move that transcends what I can do? Okay, maybe I maybe I a little went, went a little over the top there in that description, but that there was like a hint of that of like is th- is this some sort of like you know move that would never be done normally kind of thing. Like he's saying, like he's he's wondering if the computer has thought of a way to play chess that no one's thought of before. You know, he's like, if he's the best, if Gary is the best player in the world, surely he knows the best way to play chess. And this computer does something that he's like, that's weird. Why are you doing that? Now he's wondering, wait, does this computer know something about chess that no one's thought of before? Is that sort of what he's thinking? Yes, along those lines. I I, I want to be clear that it's like, there's no one obviously best way to play chess or to move chess or something like that. But yes, yes. In this case, it was such an unusual move that it kind of like, was like, whoa, what, what's going on here? This makes me ask, is the computer playing chess or is the computer playing against Gary at chess? I think in this case, it's a bit of both. They, there, was, there was so much writing on IBM winning, like so much. Yeah. So I think, I think really, really a bit of both. But what Gary said was that he feels that it, it maybe contributed to him Maybe losing focus a little bit in some ways, or I don't. Want, and I, don't uh-huh. I, I really don't want to misquote him because he went into so much detail about this in the book. But <clears throat> maybe, maybe a focus thing, or he he played certain moves differently, or or played maybe in a more defensive way because he was like, "What's going on? This is this is really weird." And maybe giving him more credit than it deserved because of the fact that it was a computer and he couldn't read it in the same way that he would a human. He couldn't react to it in the same way that he would. And it turns out, um, I don't know if it was that game or one of the other games, but there was a, there was a game where, similarly, there was a there was a weird move, and he then later uh, resigns from the game, like you know, admits defeat essentially. Then later that evening, or maybe it was the next day or something, his team told him, "Hey, actually, you know what? You could have drawn that game. Like you didn't have to lose uh, if you actually did it this way and this way and this way and this way." And he was like, oh my God, he's like, he was watching it back and he says, watching it back every single time, he's like, how could I have not seen that I could have gone for a draw and not actually lost? Mm. And it was just kind of like this whole thing that, that came about because yes, chess is a game where you have 100% information where you know all the possible moves, but there is a big 
component of it that is playing against the other player. And just like in Super Smash Brothers, in even even just like in in any other game, really in in poker or in in Pokemon or whatever, you you knowing anything about the other player at all is another component that is really really important. And he actually talked yeah. about this in the book plenty of times, where he was saying that for the rematch, for example, IBM refused to publish games that the machine had played so that Gary couldn't study any of its quirks or habits or something like that, mm. where that was previously like un, unheard of sort of thing. Um, so for and for any player that he would actually play, he could go in and study all their games and be like, okay, these are the kind of openings that this person likes. Um, that this is the kind of style that they play, and I can I can use that. But in this case, it was just such a bizarre thing. Yeah, I mean, it really drives home the point, which I think we're kind of maybe dancing around a little bit, or we've kind of been dancing around, is that so much of playing a game is knowing your opponent and playing your opponent more than it is playing anything else like there are a set number mm-hmm. of rules but the rules are really not what you're playing you're playing the opponent's interpretation of those rules or that you know set of guidelines or however the game is yep. kind of set up yeah um and you know there are people in professional sports you know physical sports and, and esports whose entire jobs are analyzing other teams yep there is this element of like okay my opponent is not going to play an infinite number of things most likely they're going to play in a certain direction and you're you're playing both your expectation that they're going to do that while also simultaneously trying to keep in mind the fact that they could go against your expectation of them at any time which in the case of seems to be the case in this chess match maybe yeah and actually now that i think about it very coincidentally i actually just a few weeks a week or two before that i had finished a book where this author journalist woman i think is her normal profession um it's a whole book about how she essentially befriends one of the world's best poker players and asks him to train her in poker and later like goes and tries to play in like some of the highest stakes poker tournaments in the world mm. coming from absolutely nothing and interesting she pretty much talks a lot about in that book how yes it really truly is so much of playing against your opponents and that even in online poker the way that people react to certain things to certain hands and stuff like that is is perfectly enough of a tell to play against them in some strategic way. That doesn't always work out, and obviously there's a lot of probability and luck and and but still skill involved. Yeah. But um. But yeah, I think I I love all that concept. I mean, with with like the thing with I, I find interesting about games that involve probability, like as in and not just probability, like uh, you know the probability that your opponent will do A or B, but the probability that. Um, you know, the next card you draw is going to be something beneficial or something not beneficial to you. I think that that element of probability or that type of probability management, I think, makes games, for at least for me personally, extremely interesting because there is this, there is that what if mm. factor when you're playing where you're saying, mm. you know, if you're like, all right, I'm going to play it safe and I'm going to do this. And then you go, but, you know, like if I'm playing, um, a, a really basic example, which may or may not land for some people, but it's like if I'm playing, if I'm playing a Pokemon game and there's, you know, my opponent has a very small amount of uh, HP left or something of, of health left, I'm going to go, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to do a, a priority move that I know is going to hit first and that I can guarantee is going to connect with the opponent, so that way I can get rid of their health and win. And then you, but then you're also thinking in the back of your mind, but 
there is the possibility that they could heal on me or they could do something unexpected that would require me to maybe the more optimal choice would be to play a slightly more powerful move that has a lower likelihood of, of hitting is like a lower accuracy or something like that. And you're kind of, you're always managing that probability of like, there is the most, what seems to be at the time, the most optimal move, but there's always the possibility that the more optimal, optimal move is the move that at the time seems to be the least optimal based on the current situation. Hmm. And I think games with that level of strategy in them, I find to me really appeal and like really stick. Hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to actually go in the opposite direction. I think those are the kinds of games that I personally enjoy a little bit less. Yeah, because, I mean they're frustrating. Because, <laughs> well, well, because okay, in in say something like Super Smash Bros. Melee or chess or something like that, where okay, I mean maybe Super Smash Bros. Melee has like a super duper tiny percentage amount of like RNG where certain characters have a move where one ninth of the time it'll do something different or something like that. But it's it's yeah, like it's never really enough that you can to the point where you can like craft a strategy around it. That's not really a thing. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's when you start getting into like the realm of like one third possibilities. Yes, yes. For me, I think the concept of it's possible for me to lose having played really, really well and losing pretty much solely to RNG, random number generator or or chance, to me is just would be so frustrating. Like if I knew that I was like yeah. like you're 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 describing in, in your in one of the Pokemon games saying you're you know, one of your Pokemon is asleep and you don't know if they're gonna wake up on this turn or two turns from now or something. If I lose because they didn't wake up on that one turn and I would have won if they did, I would just be, I would be annoyed. I'd be like, oh my God, are you serious? Like what? Come on. Yeah. Like I, well, if I would lose, a- I want it to be my fault because I wasn't good enough or my opponent was better than me and that I have like a clear response that I can improve and potentially beat them next time. Or they, they mm-hmm. had a, they had a strategy in chess that beat me. They had an excellent play that I didn't see coming or in, in super smash brothers where they, they, Called me out on something that I was doing habitually, and and the metagame advances there. Mm. Yeah, I think. But th- at the same time, like for every situation where RNG can like really bite you in the butt, like there is a situation where RNG really helps you out and you win. And I think like, is that a good feeling for you too? Yeah, it's a good feeling. Yeah, it's like if you're in a tight situation and you're like, man, if they this move connects, I'm done. Or if you know, if you're playing, I think card games are also a really good example of this, mm. where you're like, man, if I, if they draw something bad on this last turn, like, oh man, I'm really gonna I'm gonna win, you know. And especially when the the skill level between the players is is equal, I think that like element of probability makes it fun to play because then you're kind of like, you know, there's there is no easy way to kind of det- to predict what's going to happen. And I think for me that's what makes it makes it fun. Especially the card games are a great example of this. I mean, of course, Pokémon is an example of this, but um there's so many like games that have that element of like probability can make it or break it for you or your opponent. Like that to me makes it more fun. But I think that's also because historically for me, I'm not I've never been really that good with games that involve like motor skills or physical skills. Like we played Smash together, and like I, man, man, I'm really not that good at that game. <laughs> like, uh, you know, physical sports, I was never really good at those either. <laughs> so maybe there's like that's why I like games that are based on chance. <laughs> oh boy, but I, I, I loved this. I uh, can I. There's one more thing I wanted to add here that I, I want to also end with a recommendation for you and the and the listeners if they're interested. Okay, at the beginning of 2019. So it's probably mm-hmm. a little over a year and a half ago now. I read a book. And that book was recommended to me by someone who was very, very fond of 
uh, a lot of fiction, and I was like, I, I don't read as much fiction as perhaps I should, so recommend me something. And we, we'd been talking about stuff, and I think maybe I mentioned Super Smash Brothers at some point in that conversation. He goes, oh, mm-hmm. I have the book. I have just the book. And it's a book called The Player of Games by Ian M. Banks. Awesome, awesome book. I really enjoyed it. And the I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but pretty much the premise of the book is that there are entire worlds and civilizations in this universe that are pretty much solely governed by your ability to play certain games. And there, there are mm. like super intricate games that are from something as simple as like a, a variant of chess. Some people call it like three dimensional chess or something like that, where where you have certain you know pieces on a on a board or in front of you to giant arenas that have certain things controlled and stuff like that. So it's a book about yeah. all these civilizations that are that are governed by their games essentially. And the the plot, the story that follows along is there's this one guy who is sort of seen as the the best the best at games. Like there's there's no game that he can't like put his mind to and just be the best at kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so he he is contacted by this civilization that's sort of outside of the the normal group of civilizations that that he interacts with and they're like we have the hardest game that you will not be able to master you will not be able to win it's so intricate and difficult and just tough in every way that you're not going to be able to do it and if you do you can like pretty much have whatever you want essentially and the game or sorry this i think i'm pretty sure it's the civilization that he he's contacted by is called azad and he, so the whole story is of he's like, dude, I got this. And so he goes, and it's so intricate and so um, deep, and it's it's a lot of fun. So I, if you if that's at all resonating with uh, you or any of the listeners, mm. I'll put a show, show uh, link to that in the show notes. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. It's actually um, one book in a series. I don't think like the the other books in the series don't continue that same storyline. They're in the same universe, but set gotcha. like hundreds of years apart. It's kind of oh, kind that's of cool. Um, yeah. I, th- I actually, I think P- player games is the second book in that series actually, but because of the fact that they're set apart, you don't need to read them in any specific order, but they have, oh, love they have like interweaving that. connections. Oh dude, I love stuff like that. Yeah. I love like, oh man, you really, you nailed it. <laughs> you struck a nerve there. You nailed it. <laughs> a beautiful <laughs> <My> nerve. <interests. laughs> um, that's so funny. Oh man, that's so interesting. I think like, what do you think of, do you have anything else to say about it? I'm just thinking about it. Like, can we, do you think there are like archetypes of games and that, you know, any any game that you come up on can be boiled down to one of you know, let's say like sixteen different types of games or something like that. Yeah. Or do you think that really every game is truly unique in the way that it its mechanics work and all these those things? Yeah, I think I think we we love to we love to go in different directions immediately when we pose some of these questions, but <laughs> yeah, I, which I feel bad because like I I think all the questions are really really good questions, and, but I I end up loving all the conversations we have with it anyway. But in this case, I think I think you can, but I think there is just such an endless number of ways that you can represent those building blocks of games that yeah. will always be refreshing and fun. Yeah. Maybe thinking about something like card games or physical games, like with pieces and stuff like that, or or decks. I don't know. Those familiar building blocks of them, like having a deck of cards, and each person around the around the table has like some cards in their hand, and say in some turns you have to draw a card or you put down cards and stuff like that. Like that is such a that's such a familiar thing with so many kinds of games. But I feel like 
again, there's a whole world in there that I'm not very familiar with, but mm. recently in maybe the past two years, I've been introduced to some games in that world that are super fun because I, I wouldn't say because of it, but I, I, I like that they have found ways to make those similar building blocks from when I was a kid, just like playing random card games with a, a normal deck of cards and have been able to create really new fun things that feel new, mm. but with familiar building blocks. And so yeah. one example that comes to mind is the card game Exploding Kittens, which I'm not sure you and I have ever played together. I don't think we've ever played that, no. That game, I mean, that game's great and it's, it's a lot of fun and you can get, you can get very heated. It can get, it can get violent. <laughs> And, but it's, but it's based around, you know, having cards in your hand, drawing a card and doing it. It's like a very familiar thing, but, but I think it goes back to what you were originally saying where it's like, yes, those components, like that, those are very, very simple, very, very widely used components that have been around for a while. Having a deck of cards, each person around the room has an equal number of cards. There's, you know, you don't have all the information and there's certain rules about like how turns go and stuff like that. It's a, it's, it's like a very comfortable, similar thing. You add some new flair to it, and it just becomes super fun. And so yeah. I, I think experiencing that, even like a year or two ago, kind of makes me feel like there will never be game design saturation or anything like that. Like I think you can always use these building blocks in a way. And I think I think technology will probably help with that. I mean, as soon as virtual reality becomes a little bit better, like there's just a whole another can of worms in there. But even even something as simple as card games around a table, even that I think will always be compelling and and new variations of that will still be fun. Rapid fire questions. All right, I'm ready. Number one, dunking. Sorry, let me start again. (laughs) (laughs) They are the theme here. Sorry, Jesus. The theme for this episode's rapid fire questions is food related. Ooh. Slash, slash drink related, I guess. Beverage related. Okay. Number one, dunking cookies or treats in something like milk, yay or nay? Nay. Nay as well. Yeah. Oh, I feel like that's a, I feel like maybe that's not a, a popular response. Why nay? Uh, uh, I mean, the, the one thing, the one thing <laughs> I think of in like in a beverage specifically, I just don't like when food gets wet. Like an Oreo in milk or something. That's like I don't like that. Place. No, I don't like that. To me, the part of the, the the pleasure of the Oreo is the texture of the cookie versus the cream and the milk really ruins that in my opinion. You know, I completely so, agree with you. I completely agree. I I love the combination of it. I love the combination of the taste, but I will take a like like some people would say, like a like an animal, I will take a bite of the cookie and then take a sip of the milk to have them both in my mouth. But yeah, I will not dunk one in the other. Absolutely. I think that's the optimal consumption wow. method. <laughs> I'm very pleased that we agree on this. I'm sure I'm sure like 95% of listeners disagree. I don't know. I would be if we could do some sort of poll, I would be very curious to see the answers we, to that we, specific question. We can do a poll. We'll put a yeah, poll. We should do a poll. If you're interested, yeah. if you're passionate about this, polls in the show notes. Go check it out. <laughs> Next question. Spaghetti in a movie theater. Yeah, your nay. Nay. Oh, yeah. Nay. No finger. Uh, okay. Sorry to disappoint, but to me, any spaghetti with eating spaghetti, I have to look at the spaghetti, and that already is like a no in and of <laughs> itself because I don't want to look away from the movie. But also, um, 
it just seems a bit messy and the like slurping aspect of it. I don't know. And something about like crunchy things during movies. I really like spaghetti is not crunchy. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I don't like spaghetti. Like I like, like eating, uh, you know, uh, chips or eating, uh, Chex Mix or eating nuts during a movie is preferable. I just like, you know, crunching on something that that tactile experience. Oh, oh you're saying you're not saying spaghetti is crunchy. You're saying you prefer crunchy. No, yeah, I prefer crunchy, yeah. And I just think spaghetti is too much to manage. I can't just stick my hand... I mean, I could just <laughs> stick my hand in spaghetti. But, <laughs> but, but no, that's not my... I, that's not my ideal movie experience. Mm. I, I would really... I would love spaghetti in the movie theater. Um, I wish that was a norm. Um, I mean, there are a lot of foods. I've had, I've had a whole just gigantic spread of sushi in a movie theater. Um, that I brought myself, unbeknownst to the staff, <laughs> and it has been a delight. It was excellent. I would I would recommend it highly. Um, spaghetti as well. I don't. Uh, I actually don't know if I've done spaghetti specific. And maybe I have. Um, I've done I've done sushi. I've done eggs. Wow, you are quite the like, experimenter. Well, like, like pocket eggs, like hard boiled eggs. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. <laughs> we'll talk about it I mean, another time. Okay. <laughs> I'm not surprised that you would do that, but I'm also, I've never heard of such a feat being pulled off before. Last question. How much dirt can you put into strong coffee before people start to notice? <laughs> oh my God. That's an, oh, that's an evil question. As a, as a lover of dirt water, um, I must say, I must say, I think, like what percentage of? I like, mean, of, if you have like one hundred percent of the coffee that you would put in, if you say you know, say you say you have like a I don't know a tablespoon of coffee that you're gonna mix in, like what percentage of that coffee could you substitute for dirt before they would notice? Honestly, I think anything more than like a grain of dirt or a few grains of dirt, I really think would be noticeable. I mean, the the reason I say this is because. I buy a specific bag of coffee beans and I use that over a long period of time, you know. There are some times where I reach the end of that coffee bag, but I don't have enough coffee to fill up one whole, like make one full batch mm. in my French press or whatever. So you substitute it with dirt? <laughs> no, I substitute it with I substitute it with either uh a separate another usually it's just another coffee and I 100% can taste the difference mm. only because I've been exposed so long to one type of coffee that like even the introduction of just like a small amount of another type of coffee, I immediately notice it. I think the same thing could be said with like, with uh, like sugar in coffee, like the, a drop, a gra- a single grain of sugar in coffee ruins it. You can taste it. I don't know what it is. It's just like, I think it's because, and this, you know, I could be wrong about this, but it's like because the flavor of coffee is so far in the bitter direction, mm. anything contrary to that, you immediately recognize as mm. contrast. Mm-hmm. However, I don't know what dirt tastes like. So <laughs> I imagine dirt is almost sweet. I don't know why that comes to mind because it smells like rich and like earthy. Mm. And like coffee is not earthy necessarily, it's like acidic and bitter. And I feel like earth, the dirt wouldn't taste like that. I feel like earth, dirt would be more savory. I mean, not that I've eaten dirt, and I would be able to tell you that. But <laughs> I, I imagine dirt as like somewhat more savory than it is acidic. 
So I think you would notice if you had even a little bit in, mm. in a cup of coffee. So you're saying even like 5% dirt you'd notice? Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. Here's what I think I'm going to do. I'm going to briefly say my response, and then yeah. I'm going to leave the listeners on a cliffhanger because I want to start episode four explaining this position more long-term. Ooh, okay. If you're listening to it as you finish this episode, I mean, the next episode is right there, so you might as well just start it and and get going. Just listen to more of us. (laughs) But my answer is going to be, you could replace 100% of the coffee with dirt. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm I'm literally going to be thinking about that. Your favorite music is your high school music after this. (laughs) Sorry if I ruined it for you. Basketball is a great example. If you were to put one more player on the court in basketball, I mean, that would change everything. From what is it, five <laughs> or seven? I don't know. <laughs> team oh my God. Of players on each team. <laughs> I just know it's not that many. <laughs> Rough. I mean, oh God.